All right, meditations four through six. Let's do this. So at this point, to recap, um, we are still following Descartes on his project. Um, we are still seriously distrusting the senses. Uh, we still have plenty of evidence that they deceive us and have messed with us. Um, and therefore, we're not going to trust them until further notice. Not even the fact that, like, we have a body is going to be trustworthy. Um, at first, we ruled out literally all of our ideas, all of our perceptions, all of our understanding, and then ultimately came to the conclusion that we couldn't doubt the fact that we exist, that even the very act of doubting, even if we were being deceived by some evil genius, we had to exist. Um, from the fact that we exist and have all of these ideas and have all of these sensations, um, we concluded that we have in, we have some sort of reliability in these ideas. Like, we have to acknowledge that the ideas themselves exist, and they must come from somewhere. Which is where we get our proof that the idea of God could not have come from anywhere other than God himself. So at this point we have proven exactly two things. That I exist, Descartes exists, um, because he thinks, he doubts, all of that. And also that God exists, because the idea of God could not have come from anywhere except God himself. And thus, God must exist. Um, granted these two things, though, we now have a new problem. Namely, we make mistakes. Um, just as Aquinas is dealing with the problem of error, and just as we have run into um, the problem of evil uh, throughout our class, so Descartes has his own take on this. We are occasionally mixed up about things. We make mistakes. We make error. Uh, and that doesn't seem to line up with the revelation that God as a perfect being exists. Like, now that we've ruled out the possibility of our, you know, evil genius deceiving us all the time, now that we have an actual good, perfect God hanging out in the wings of our argument, we need to explain why that God allows us to make mistakes. Um, how is it compatible for God and our error to exist together? Um, and this is Meditation 4. The entirety of Meditation 4 is about error. Um, so... The thing that Descartes observes is he goes back to that original list of eight capacities, eight faculties that we have a, as a thinking thing have. Um, remember, we can doubt, we can understand, we can affirm and deny, we can will and refuse, and we can imagine and we can sense. And the key one that Descartes wants to look at here is the business of willing, um, making the choice to affirm and deny. Again, as far as the ideas themselves are concerned, Descartes has no beef with them whatsoever. The fact that you have an idea of, an ham of a hamburger or an anchovy, of God or a dragon, that does not mean that you are wrong. The fact that you have this idea does not imply that you believe that this idea exists in reality. Having an idea of a hamburger doesn't mean the same thing as believing that hamburgers exist. Now, making that jump, making the conclusion hamburgers exist, that is not an act of the intellect strictly. Like, it is not an act of the understanding, it is an act of judgment. It is saying, here is my idea, here is the world as I understand it. I posit that my idea exists apart from me in some reality. And as you'll remember, at this point, we don't have an outside reality. We don't believe in bodies. We don't believe in sensation. We don't take any of that terribly seriously, because at this point, we don't have any evidence that any of it exists. All we believe is, I exist, God exists, that's it. So, for us to say, 
I posit that hamburgers exist. I posit that anchovies exist. I posit that unicorns exist. These are all acts of judgment and therefore subject to error. Um, that's the key here. For Descartes, having ideas isn't a problem. Having ideas does not make them wrong. Um, ideas themselves are not in any way true or false, right or wrong. It is only when we apply our judgment to these ideas, try to place them in the world or talk about their relationships to one another, that we get into trouble. Um, so judgment, the act of judging, is where error creeps into this equation. Um, but why? See, for Descartes, judgment is an act of the will. It is making a decision. It is doing something deliberately. If you choose to affirm the existence of anchovies, it is because you are doing something, making a choice, using your will. So the will is where this error is creeping in. Judgment is not an act of pure intellect. It is not an act of the understanding or doubting or any of that stuff. It is an act of the will. Making the affirmation, making the denial, these are judgments, these are subject to error. Um, now, Descartes observes that the will itself is infinite. We can make determinations, opinions, decisions about literally anything in the entire universe, assuming that it exists. Um, and remember, there are no limitations at this point because, remember, there is no outside world. We are just a thinking thing. There is literally nothing to stop us saying anything about anything. Any of the ideas we have in our brains, we can say literally anything about as long as it doesn't, like, directly contradict that idea itself. So I can be like, hamburgers are disgusting. I don't want to eat any of them. Um, or anchovies are great. I want them on all of my pizzas. Or unicorns totally are the best created creature under God's creation. Like, I can make all of these judgments because there is nothing limiting my will from believing or willing or affirming in any way. Our ability to will is infinite. Um, so consider an example. Like, imagine that I'm holding up a pen in my hand right now, and I look to the class and I say, what I'd call this pen Steve. Is this a good name for a pen? And everybody in the class can call out, yes, that's a good name for a pen, or no, that's a crappy name for a pen. Why would you name it Steve? You're dumb. Um, we can all make that opinion really fast. In fact, I used to do this in my classes before I was stranded at home alone in my apartment. Um, I would hold up a marker and I'd be like, the name of this marker is Steve. And people would be like, that's a dumb name for a marker. And they would call out possible other names, like they would want to call it Aloysius, or they would want to call it, you know, Mark the Marker. God, every time I did this, some idiot would call out, I want that marker's name to be Mark. And I'd be like, you were, an, you were a terrible person. Um, but then what's weird is one time I did it and I was using colored markers, like I had a blue and a pink marker, and I held up the pink marker and I was like, this marker's name is Steve. Does everyone agree that this marker's name should be Steve? And they would all be like, no, that marker's name should be Jillian or Carol, or, you know, some girl's name. And I'm like, you are all a bunch of sexist, misogynist, stereotyping monsters. 
why? Why would you name the girl marker or the pink marker a girl marker, whereas the blue marker should be a boy marker? Like, what the heck? Why would you do that? But the fact, or, the fact of the matter is, we do this all the time. Like, we make tons of judgments about stuff that we haven't the faintest idea what we're talking about. We can make these opinions about literally anything. Like, I could walk into class and be like, I think the weather is nice today. And inevitably, somebody will be like, it's crap. Um, you can always form a contrary opinion. You can always make an opinion uh, no matter what the circumstances are. Like... Right now we're sitting in our coronavirus quarantine, and I'm sure that literally every one of you listening to this has an opinion about how our presidential administration has handled the situation. Has Trump handled it well? Has Trump handled, handled it badly? You probably all have an opinion about this. And honestly, you are probably all working on bad information, like, or at least very insufficient information. Um, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes of the presidential administration as a rule. Yes, sometimes he looks like an idiot in interviews. Yes, it has been handled better in other countries. Um, at the same time, like, could it have been handled better? Are we handling it better? Is it best that he just left us to our own devices? Or is it best that he, like, try and control the situation, micromanage it, and then we end up in, like, a Chinese bat-failed quarantine scenario with, like, the entire province falling apart? It's hard to say. We really don't know. Like, I don't want to give anyone too much or too little credit here. The fact of the matter is, I don't know what the decision-making process is. Um, I only see the little bit of information I get through social media, through the news sources, through interviews, things like that. It's hard to judge. But that's my point, and that's Descartes' point. See, we have an infinite will. We can make opinions about literally anything, no matter how stupid. We can name the marker, even though the marker is an inanimate object and it does not have a personality and therefore doesn't warrant any particular name, purple or blue or pink or whatever color it might be. And yet we still make these opinions. But on the other hand, Descartes acknowledges we do not, under any circumstances, have infinite understanding. We only know so much about the world. We have a very limited knowledge at the same time as we have this infinite ability to weigh in on whatever it is we want to weigh in on. Um, he even notes that like God's own facility for willing is completely the same as ours. We both have an infinite capacity to will. The difference is God has the power to enact his will. Like, I can say the world should have fewer countries in it and then, you know, like, draw new boundary lines on Earth. It doesn't mean that that's actually going to change anything. I can still will it even without the power. And again, with the universe being only a question mark in Descartes' mind, that means we have basically unlimited power as far as our own minds are concerned. But nonetheless, we don't know. Like, we don't know what it would take to make fewer countries, to try and consolidate everybody's language into one language, to make, like, good choices about the coronavirus. We don't know all of the information. We don't have all of the information. We don't know all the factors that are involved. That's part of what it means to be human. So what Descartes concludes is that we are making errors because we are judging things that we don't properly understand. Any time that our will overextends our knowledge, we are running the risk of error. 
Like, as long as we're making decisions based on stuff that we know for sure, like, I know the sun will rise tomorrow, so I am going to plan on, like, waking up tomorrow and doing more lectures because that is what I have control over, um, that's fine. We understand all of the various factors involved in this case. You know, some accepted. We are reasonably sure, let's say. Um, as far as, like, should I eat breakfast this morning? Why, yes, I should eat breakfast this morning because nutrition is important for my ability to do stuff during the course of the day. This is something that I am in control of. This is something that I know enough about. But if somebody came to me and said, Professor Kozlowski, how would you fix the coronavirus crisis? And I started mouthing off about, well, I would make it a national emergency and I would force everyone to stay in their homes. And then... You know, nobody would be allowed to leave, so it would limit the exposure of everybody, except for maybe essential personnel, like, I don't know, like, people who are doctors or surgeons or people who work at hospitals. Like, I would inevitably overlook stuff. I would inevitably make bad calls. I would make mistakes. People would die because I don't know everything that's going on. I don't understand all of the stuff that's happening. Um, that's where we make mistakes. And Descartes therefore advises us to avoid this. Whenever possible, do not make judgments about things we don't understand. So if you look at page 548, that second column, I think it's like two-thirds of the way down, there's this long paragraph here. But if I hold off from making a judgment when I do not perceive what is true with sufficient clarity and distinctness, it is clear that I am acting properly and am not committing an error. If I only act, if I only judge on things that I fully understand, I'm not going to make mistakes. But if instead I were to make an assertion or a denial, then I am not using my freedom properly. If instead I say, I think we should do X when I don't fully understand the circumstances, then I run the risk of error. But were I to embrace the other alternative, it will be by sheer luck that I happen upon the truth. But I will still not be without fault, for it is manifest by the light of nature that a perception on the part of the intellect must always precede a determination on the part of the will. If I make the right call, it's just going to be dumb luck. If I, you know, make a call about the coronavirus, if this person who came up to me and gave me, like, unlimited power over the quarantine situation, and I'm like, put the hospital people here and put, like, the central services over there, and for some reason nobody dies, like, great, that's awesome. I had no idea that I was doing the right thing. There's, like... I'm making a complete extrapolation based on insufficient data, and it's just a dumb luck that I got it right, that I did the right thing in this situation. That's still not good. Like, I should not be praised for acting on insufficient data, for making this bad judgment call. In the same way that a person shouldn't be praised for picking the right number at roulette. They're not smarter than everybody else. They're just luckier than everybody else. And honestly, they were making a bad decision in trying to estimate what was going to happen in the first place. Why are you playing roulette, we should be asking. That is an irresponsible use of your time and money. So he continues, inherent in the incorrect use of free will is the privation that constitutes the very essence of error. The privation, I say, present in this operation insofar as the oper operation proceeds for me, but not in the faculty given to me by God, nor even in its operation insofar as it depends on him. Remember, the central question here is, how is it compatible for there to be this good, perfect God who doesn't want to deceive me and for us to make mistakes? Well, here's our answer. It's not God making the mistake. It's us making the mistake. 
God gave us good powers, and he enumerates them in the next page. We don't have any reason to complain about being given an infinite will, the ability to make an opinion or a decision about literally anything that strikes us as interesting. That's a good thing. That is a divine power in all, for all intents and purposes. And for that matter, the will does not admit of anything else. You can't imagine a version of the will where it's like, well, you can only weigh in on stuff you understand. Like, no, if you're going to will on anything, if you're going to have freedom, then it has to be absolute freedom. That's the way it works. Likewise, he can't complain that God gave him insufficient understanding. It's not a problem that we don't understand everything about the world. We are, by nature, finite beings. We were created that way. Um, if we instead understood everything, we would be infinite beings. And there can only be one infinite being. We already talked about him. His name is God. So, by definition, a created thing must necessarily be finite, has finite understanding, and therefore not be able to understand everything in the world. So, we have this infinite will, this infinite freedom. We must necessarily have this finite understanding, which means we are going to be subject to error. Um, now, the third factor here is falsehood itself. Like, error itself isn't a positive evil. It is a negative evil. It is something that is allowed, not something that is encouraged. Again, right use of our will would be only using it in situations where we fully understand the circumstances, where we know what's going on. If I wake up in the middle of the night and my fire alarm is going off, I admittedly don't know for sure whether there is a fire. Maybe my fire alarm is acting badly. For a while it was going off there under any... Uh, for any stupid reason. Or maybe next door my neighbor's fire alarm is going off and I don't know why it is. Maybe it is also flawed or maybe my neighbor is just smoking a joint. This happens sometimes. Um, in which case I am presented with an action that I have to take but I can't actually decide what is the right course of action. By Descartes' logic, no matter what we do, we're going to be doing the wrong thing because we don't actually have the right information. We should seek out the right information. We should knock on my neighbor's door, ask if they are okay, um, ask if they are smoking weed, which, you know, is the sort of polite question that any neighbor is willing to answer at a moment's notice. Um, this is all good. Like, it's not something that is God's fault. It's our fault for misusing our intellect, making judgments about things we don't properly understand. That's not on God. Moreover, he does consider one last possibility. What if God had made us so even though we are free, even though we can, you know, weigh in on stuff beyond our ken, even though we can make judgments that we shouldn't make, we will always make the right ones. Like, God's omnipotent, he can do that. But Descartes now gets into typical Christian territory. You know, the God moves in mysterious ways. We are just a small part of the grand creation. It is possible that our fallibility is a part of God's plan and makes the universe better in some way. So, again, this very much smells of a moderation on the problem of evil. You'll remember the problem of evil is God is all good, God is all powerful, and yet evil exists. One of these three things must not be the case, or God must not exist. Um, for Aquinas, the solution was it's about evil. Evil doesn't really exist. It is a negative quality. God brings out of evil even greater good, and so evil just produces even better good because God is just so awesome. Here is our other argument. If we change this just a little bit, 
we end up with the problem of error. God is all truthful. He does not lie or deceive. God is all powerful, and yet error exists. Descartes' solution? We have free will. It is given to us by God. It is a good thing. There is room in this. There is, um, there is the possibility of error even in this perfectly oriented situation or this best possible scenario oriented situation. God has a plan here. In short, he is arguing that God isn't omnipotent in the sort of unlimited power sense. He is saying God is omnipotent as far as it is logical. And since freedom must allow for the possibility of error, he gives us freedom knowing that error must be inevitable. Um, so again, the solution isn't God doesn't exist. God still exists. God is still perfect. God is still not a deceiver. God is still all good. He just gave us the ability to make mistakes. That's part of his plan. For whatever crazy reason, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Now, I realize that's probably unsatisfying to you, so by all means, bring it up during the Q&A. I'd love to talk about your complaints and aversions here. Um, this is Descartes' argument, and I will stand by it and defend it, but I realize that there are going to be greater and greater hiccups as we go along. But notice the emphasis here. As much as this is about God and demonstrating that God is still all good and does not deceive, notice that the sort of key passage here is the one that I read about epistemological ethics knowing before you make judgments, understanding the situation before you make this rash choice, and ultimately perhaps doom us to error or mistakes. The key takeaway from part four, meditation four, is do not make hasty decisions. Understand your situation before you make your judgments. Do not affirm or deny. Do not exercise your will until you properly understand everything that's going on. Now we're going to come back to that. So, you know, put a pin in it. Because Meditation 5 is going to take us forward. Now that we have demonstrated that God exists, and not only that God exists, but that God is trustworthy, he does not deceive us, he is good, perfect, etc., we can now bring back some of the stuff that we originally threw out as we were considering what we can't know for sure. Um, specifically, because Descartes, it's math. Hooray, this has turned into a math lesson, and I don't even have a whiteboard to work with, so you're going to all just have to imagine triangles. We apologize in advance. Now keep in mind, Descartes actually was a mathematician. That was his game, primarily. Like, as much as we philosophers claim him as our own for writing the meditations and the discourse on method, most of his work was devoted to mathematics. Um, and in fact, you can see like little bits and pieces here. He relies on a lot of mathematical proofs to sort of use, serve as examples for what he's talking about here. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is like Descartes was not a slouch mathematician either. He was a really important mathematician. He was very much setting up um, Newton and calculus in the next hundred years. Um, largely because Descartes' own personal project was to unify or algebra and geometry. And he succeeded. Um, P.S. That horrible graphing system that you probably learned in middle school and were forced to use all the, high, all the time in high school, like the do you have the x-axis that's horizontal and the y-axis that's vertical and you end up with like fancy equations like uh 2x plus 5 or y equals 2x plus 5 and this is like a line that you have to plot on the graph um this is called the cartesian plane 
because it was invented by Descartes. Um, this was his baby. Like, that business of plotting 2x plus 9 equals y and making that into a line, that is basically you taking the first steps to being able to draw triangles and squares and circles and all manner of things on a graph using algebra. Um, this is him basically unifying these two up until this point isolated uh, scientific mathematical uh, disciplines. Um, it's all one math, Descartes insists. We should be unifying it. We should not have different like procedures for these different mathematical projects. Um, and notice how he immediately wants to talk about math. Like, we've got God, and we know that God is trustworthy. It's time to talk about math. Um, now, the reason being is, way back in Meditation 1, when we were talking about the stuff that we can't trust anymore, we eliminated math because we couldn't trust our own reason, because we had to consider the possibility of an evil genius deceiving us, making us think that our reason was reliable when actually it wasn't. But now we've eliminated that possibility. God is trustworthy. God is perfect. Um, God does not cause us to deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we make judgments about the world based on the ideas that we have, but the ideas themselves are good. Um, like, remember, there are no problems with actual ideas. The fact that you can imagine a dragon does not mean that the dragon is wrong or right, or true or false. That just is an idea, isolated. It's only when you say dragons are in whales that you end up with a problem. Um, so now that we have rescued our intelligence, our reason, from the possibility of being deceived by this evil genius, we can now talk about math reliably. Anything that involves just ideas or the relationship between ideas is now trustworthy um, because it does not require judgment and judgment is the only possible source of our error. Um, so that means that those purely mathematical or purely idealistic arguments that we've been able to create up until this point hold water. Um, and he uses the example of like a triangle. A triangle has three sides, three angles. We know this. Um, by definition, a triangle is a three-sided figure. But we know more about triangles than just the fact that they're a three-sided figure. We know that the if you take all of the angles in a triangle and add them all together, you end up with 180 degrees, the same as two right angles. Um, this follows from the nature of the triangle. It's not part of the definition of a triangle. It is an accident, but a necessary accident. It must necessarily follow from the definition of the triangle. In the same way, we can talk about the Pythagorean theorem. Anytime that you have a triangle with a right angle, you will necessarily have its sides related to each other in the relationship a squared plus b squared equals c squared. The hypotenuse, the length of the hypotenuse squared will equal the length of the other two sides squared and added together. This follows naturally from the definition of what it means to be a right triangle. Um, this doesn't mean that they are part of the definition again. It's just something that follows necessarily. Um, and this is now trustworthy. Remember, it, this does not imply that triangles exist in any sense. It's just once we have this definition, once we have this idea of what a triangle is, all of these qualities, all of these characteristics must, by nature, follow. Um, and this is trustworthy. It is not a judgment. It is a clear and distinct idea. It is the same rational 
proof that we dealt with when we proved that we existed, that God existed. All of this is just within the realm of the intellect. It has nothing to do with reality proper. But, importantly, while we are kicking around all of these mathematical truths, all of these ideas related to ideas, and their relationship to one another as being this sort of trustworthy, guaranteed thing, Descartes is like, oh, wait a minute, we have another proof of the existence of God. Hooray! Because, again, when we talk about God as this perfect being, that means he must exist. Existence is a perfection. God has all the perfections. God must exist. And if you are thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds really familiar. Of course that's familiar. That is the freaking ontological argument. We talked about this. That's Anselm all over again. It's a little bit different insofar as we use different terms. Like Anselm says, the greater the being than which nothing greater can be conceived is God and therefore must exist because if it has existence, it is greater than something that does not have existence. Descartes is just saying the same thing. A perfect being must exist because existence is a perfection, and if it is a perfect being, it doesn't lack a perfection like existence. It necessarily follows. Just as a triangle must have angles that add up to two right angles, so must God exist. It follows just as naturally as the idea of a valley must, necessi must necessarily accompany the idea of a mountain. Um, they accompany one another. You cannot imagine a high place without a corresponding low place. You cannot imagine a mountain without a valley accompanying it. It doesn't mean that there are mountains or that there are valleys, just as imagining that a triangle has two right angles does not mean that there must be triangles out in nature and we're just waiting to trip over one of them. No. But this relationship in the ideal realm, in our minds, must adhere must be observed. You cannot imagine a triangle without its sides adding, or without its angles adding up to 180 degrees. You cannot imagine a mountain without imagining the valley that accompanies it. And likewise, you cannot imagine God without imagining that he exists. It must necessarily follow. Now, I realize that we have criticized Anselm's ontological argument in the past and that every criticism we brought up about Anselm should definitely come back here. Now even Aquinas's criticism of Anselm we could bring up but here it's not entirely appropriate and Aquinas's criticism of Anselm is less a criticism of the truth of his argument as the appearance of his argument. Anselm says it is self-evident that God exists. Aquinas says, no, it's not self-evident. It is self-evident once you understand who God is. It's not immediately self-evident to us. It's self-evident to God. Descartes is basically saying the same, the, or taking the same tack here. He is saying, yes, God's existence follows necessarily from his perfection, but we don't have to think it. Like, I don't have to think of triangles and thus not come to the conclusion that they must have angles that add up to 180 degrees. I don't have to imagine a mountain at all, and it, but if I do imagine a mountain, it will be accompanied by a valley, guaranteed. Therefore, I don't know right out of the gate, self-evidently, that God exists, but as soon as I think about God's perfection, I have to posit his existence as an accompaniment of it. Now... So, again, I doubt that this is terribly satisfactory to you. You're probably sitting there wrinkling your nose and saying to yourself, mm, I didn't like Anselm's argument before, I don't like it now. That's fine. Let's take a step back. Notice the structure of the meditations at this point. 
we started out with all of this doubt and it was very important and we had this major problem with the senses and you know we wanted to fix it and we wanted to find out what we actually really know then we moved on and made our first proof hooray we must exist no possible way for us to imagine us not existing and then we proved the existence of god in meditation three and then we had that long discussion about whether or not God's creed responsible for error, how does error come about, what is error, and then here we are, meditation five, hooray, math is back, we all get to love math again, and also, P.S., God exists. See, there's a sleight of hand here. Remember back in my first lecture when I was talking about Descartes' situation? It's the Renaissance, it is after the Reformation, the Catholic Church is really paranoid about all of these free-thinking individuals changing up the formula. Well, I suspect, though I don't have a whole heck of a lot of proof, that Descartes is making this argument deliberately. He does not need a second proof for the existence of God for his argument to sort of re-justify the senses to proceed. He's already proven that God exists, and he has already proven that God is reliable. But he puts in the extra argument anyway. And more than that, you'll notice, as I've stressed, each of these arguments for the existence of God looks suspiciously similar to the classic uh, Catholic-approved arguments for the existence of God. His first one smacked strongly of Aquinas. This one is almost beat-for-beat beat Anselm. Why? Why would he put in this frivolous extra argument for the existence of God except to pacify the church. See, Descartes not an idiot. Um, he knows that he is running a great risk by changing the entire foundation of philosophy here, by switching the script so that now I, my experience, takes the first chair over and above the proving the existence of God, like Aquinas and Anselm and virtually every medieval philosopher before him. He knows that this is a big deal. He knows that he is challenging church precepts in the Discourse on Method as well as being here. So not one, but two proofs for the existence of God show up in the meditations to comfort and remind the church that everything is all right. We're not changing it so dramatically. God is still a critical part of the process. He even emphasizes here at the end of Meditation 5, Thus I see plainly that the certainty and truth of every science depends exclusively upon the knowledge of the true God, to the extent that, prior to my becoming aware of him, I was incapable of achieving perfect knowledge about anything else. We couldn't have math without God. We couldn't have science without God. We couldn't have rationality without God. God is still the first step, except for the fact that we have to be here to make the step. He's being careful here. He's being political here. He is covering his ass here. And more importantly, take a second look at that meditation four, the one that's sandwiched by these arguments for the existence of God. See, meditation three, proof of the existence of God. Meditation five, proof of the existence of God. Then what is he hiding? What is the key part of meditation four that is so important, that requires this patting on the back of the church, that needs him to remind the church, no, it's really okay? Well, think about what he actually said there. 
Again, that little passage on epistemological responsibility, if I hold off from making a judgment when I do not perceive what is true with sufficient clarity and distinctness, it is clear that I am acting properly and am not committing an error. But if instead I were to make an assertion or a denial, then I am not using my freedom properly. G, can you think of anyone who were making judgments without sufficient reason? Can you think of anyone who was challenging the established traditions and who really paid the price for it? See, Descartes is talking about Galileo here. Descartes is talking about the church here. Descartes is stressing it is irresponsible to make judgments about things we don't fully understand, like the universe, like science, like astronomy. He is saying if you don't know what you're talking about, then you've got to shut up. That's the only responsible way to use your knowledge. That is the only way to avoid error. And again, by extension, sin. What he's basically saying here is the church is wrong. The church has been insisting on these principles of Plato and Aristotle for years. And again, Descartes is taking aim at Plato and Aristotle. The first thing he does is throw out everything Plato and Aristotle have to say. It is all nonsense. It is all not to be considered. We are starting from first principles. We are going to start philosophy from the beginning. As though Plato and Aristotle never wrote anything and that their authority is within question because my senses are within question. He is throwing out everything that the church says and saying, okay, what do we know? Well, here's one thing that we know. Acting without sufficient reason, acting without sufficient knowledge is dangerous, can get us into huge trouble. So don't do it. If Galileo shows up and says, hey, I've got this grand new mathematical formula that models the way that the universe works, and in it, the sun does not go around the earth, the earth goes around the sun, where is your proof that it is otherwise? Where is your chapter and verse, your guaranteed conclusions, your biblical evidence that it's not that way? Because if you don't have that argument, if you aren't 100% sure, then you shouldn't be weighing in on it. Galileo is 100% sure. He's done the math. He did the algebra. He did the geometry. He thinks that this is the best model of the universe given the bit of knowledge that we have. If that's the case... We should trust him. And that's not in opposition to God. In fact, God gave us the tools to figure this stuff out. This is godly work. See, if we jump forward to Meditation 6, he follows this out. Now, Meditation 6 is the last of the meditations. This is it, the big conclusion. We have gone through all of the key components of Descartes' argument. We have proven that we exist. We have proven that God exists twice. We have proven that God is trustworthy. We have rescued math from obscurity. Now it's finally time to deal with the central problem that Descartes has been sort of futzing around with all along. What about the senses? What about the body? What about us? What about everything that we think we know about the universe around us? We still have not demonstrated that there is anything outside of just us and God. It's time to finally do that. And immediately we run into roadblocks, like immediately. Um, the senses 
are still not 100% trustworthy. There are still problems that we have here. Now, Descartes starts by making a distinction between the imagination and pure intellect, i.e. like all the stuff that he has been reasoning has been something that's been going on with his clear and distinct perception in his understanding, not in his imagination. These are separate powers. The things that he can imagine don't necessarily exist. The things that exist, he can't necessarily imagine. Chiliagons exist. He can make arguments about them. He can make observations about them. He can make mathematical proofs about them. He can't imagine a Chiligon to save his soul because it's a 100-sided figure and we only have so much processing power when it comes to understanding shapes in our mind. Importantly, though, he also notices that these judgments, which are the sources of error, these result from us using our understanding to filter our imagination. Like, we can imagine a triangle, we recognize with our understanding that a triangle must have sides that add up to 180 degrees. We cannot imagine the triangle in any other way. We understand mathematically why this is the case. Therefore, this is a conclusion that we understand clearly and distinctly. This is something we know to be sure. This is something true. This is not a reckless judgment. We understand every component at stake here. Sensation, however, is a little trickier. Um, when we are talking about things in nature, we are talking about applying our judgment. Now, the trick is there's different levels at which we apply our judgment. On some things, we absolutely just are ambivalent about and we need to use our judgment to weigh in on them. Like if somebody asks you, are there more or less than 20 students in our class? You'll probably need to take a step back, think about it, try and like estimate how many students have been in our class at any given point, unless you're me and you have the roster and you know exactly how many students are in our class. Um, and then you'll probably say, yeah, I think there's more than 20 or mm, probably not more than 20. Um, this is indifferent to us but sometimes nature inclines us to believe things for its own purposes we naturally want to do things when you feel that certain tickle in your stomach it means it's time to eat you're hungry when you feel that certain tickle at the back of your throat it means that you're thirsty it's time to drink something this is not necessarily an act of judgment although admittedly you do eventually need to apply an act of judgment you do need to actually like will yourself to go into the kitchen get yourself a drink get yourself something to eat. I really have to stop using food metaphors. If I really hope you're not listening to these lectures on an empty stomach. It will go very badly for you. Um, but sometimes we make mistakes there as well. Sometimes nature inclines us to believe things that aren't true. And this is a new problem. Like, think of the most obvious example of there being a direct stimulus that causes you to believe that something is the case. Imagining you're walking down the sidewalk and you step on a nail. Like, it digs up in your foot, and it causes you great pain immediately. Like, this is not, it takes a moment, and you're like, hmm, I feel this strange sensation coming from my foot. I wonder what my correct reaction should be in the circumstances. No, you scream. You're like, ah, I stepped on a nail. This really hurt. Your body is telling you something that is not for you to judge. Um, it is giving you a very clear communication, a very clear message that your judgment is not wrapped up in at all. But Descartes notices, sometimes we make mistakes even there. 
Like, what happens if somebody poisons the food we're about to eat? Well, obviously, we don't know that it's poison. We don't want it because it's poison. We want it because it is nutritious and healthy. So that's one thing, and we can kind of rule it out. Like, that's, again, people making bad judgments further down the line of causes. But what about situations where nature just really screws us over? Like, he considers the possibility of phantom pain. This is this phenomenon where, like, people who go to war or people who have industrial accidents, they'll, like, lose a limb. Like, they lose their leg or they lose their arm. And yet, occasionally, these people report feeling tingling sensations or even flat-out pain in the limb that is missing. Now, this doesn't make any sense by Descartes' estimation at this point. Remember, error is a product of us making decisions. If you're feeling pain, well, that's not something you can control. When you step on the nail, it's you don't, like, choose to feel pain. It's not like you're walking along and then you're like, maybe I should check and see if I'm feeling pain for any reason. Oh, wait, I'm feeling a lot of pain in my foot right now. No, you feel it and it overwhelms you. It is something that you cannot fight down. Um, you cannot stop feeling pain and in fact it's really annoying like if you hurt yourself and you're feeling pain for a great period of time like you kind of wish you could do stuff and yet can't because the pain keeps interrupting everything you're doing it's obnoxious in addition to being painful phantom pain is a pain you can't fix because it's a pain that's coming from literally nowhere you shouldn't be able to feel pain in your fingers if you don't have those fingers so we are naturally getting this information and it is bad information. It is an error, but it is not our error. It is an error in nature itself. Likewise, he describes this disease, dropsy. And apparently with dropsy, you become really thirsty. Like, you want to get something to drink. However, when you drink something, it makes the disease worse. The best course of action with dropsy is to ignore that sensation, to not drink anything, and to let your the disease sort of kill itself in this process. So once again, you are deceived, and it's deception that is not the result of you making a bad judgment. You are naturally inclined to do these things. You naturally want food, and yet it's poisoned. You naturally want something to drink, and yet it'll kill you. You naturally feel pain, and yet the pain is coming from nowhere. So... This means that while true, you will make bad judgments in this case, like actually doing the thing is going to exacerbate the problem. It's, no, it's not wrong for you to say, I feel pain. It's just wrong for nature to constitute you to feel pain in a situation where it's not appropriate. Remember, God is not a deceiver. God designed us in a certain way to give us the best impulses, the best information that we can get. What Descartes' ultimate conclusion here is basically God made us and made the world in such a way that we would not be deceived. Because God is not a deceiver. Why would he make us think that there's an outside world with all these rocks and food and trees and so on? Why would he make us think that these things are the case unless these things are in fact actually the case? God could make the world that way, so God did make the world that way because God is not a deceiver. We can trust our senses because God gave us our senses and God could make the world in line with our senses. So indeed, our senses are rescued, except that occasionally they deceive us in ways that have nothing to do with our judgment. We can't pin that on us. We cannot rescue God's culpability from this. We have to come up with a new argument. So 
what Descartes suggests is this is once again a limitation in the way that things can be oriented. God couldn't make things any other way. If you imagine again that scenario of stepping on a nail, think about what has to happen for you to feel pain. Descartes observes like all of our thinking, our whole the seat of reason, the thinking thing, or at least the place where the thinking thing connects to the body is undoubtedly the brain. Um, that's where all the thinking takes place. Or like, he again is very ambiguous on this whole mind-body thing. He doesn't know how the mind connects to the body. It's not clear for Descartes and it's going to become a major problem in philosophy for many years to come. So he doesn't know for sure how that works, but he knows that wherever we get the messages from, the connection is at the brain. Now you'll notice the brain is very far away from the foot. So in order for us to feel pain in our foot when we step on a nail, some kind of message has to travel all the way up from our foot to the brain. And that means it has to be transmitted somehow. Now, Descartes and 17th century anatomy is just sophisticated enough to realize that there's like this whole nervous system that is doing this job. They have a pretty rudimentary idea of how the nervous system works, but the basics are there. You tug on one part of the nervous system and it tugs all the way up the line to the brain and you get this signal. I am in pain. Ow, I stepped on a nail. But what Descartes also observes is if you have this system in place, then the system can be hijacked. Um, if you are getting a message from your foot and the nerve that connects your foot to your brain will relay it from your foot to your brain. But if somebody hijacks the nerve that connects to foot, your foot to your brain, like hijacks it at the knee, for example. It's got to pass through the leg to get to your brain, right? Like that's the way that bodies work. That's the way that lines work. So if somebody like takes your nerve at your knee and like gives an electric shock or something, you will feel pain, not in your knee, but in your foot. Because it's that nerve that's been hijacked. The line has to run through there, but the line is talking from foot to brain. Dropsy or phantom pain is just that process happening. Like you may be missing your entire leg, but the nerve that connected your foot to your brain is still present in your torso, in your neck, in your head. So maybe phantom pain is just a pinched nerve somewhere along the line that used to connect the brain to the foot. So if somebody hijacks that nerve, the remaining nerve, you will feel pain in your foot even though you don't have a foot to feel pain in. Likewise, dropsy might be some connection between your throat and your brain. Maybe it is hijacking your throat to make you feel in your brain that you're thirsty when your throat isn't actually setting, sending you a message at all. These lines must necessarily be able to be hijacked. Now you're probably saying to yourself, well, God could design a better system than this. Maybe he could make a wireless connection. You know, you don't have to have this line traveling from your foot to your brain. It'll just like instantaneously over the personal Wi-Fi go straight to your brain. But do you really want your pain to be a Wi-Fi thing? Like, 
really, people are warning you all the time. Do not hook your laptop up to the public Wi-Fi. People will hack it. People will make a mess of it. Like, if you have a wireless transmission, can you imagine, like, you'll walk through a radio station and they'll, like, turn on the specific frequency and you will suddenly double over in pain because you were getting these random signals from all over your body because somebody is interfering with your own personal wireless system. Like, that would be a huge mistake and a terrible problem. No, better to landline this one. But again, that means that you run this risk. See, the trouble is, any time that you're trying to communicate information over a distance, you are going to be subject to hacking. Like, something can disorient the process. Something can hijack this process. So, as long as you've got the ability to communicate pain from your foot to your brain, you will also necessarily have the vulnerability to receive bad information at anywhere along that line. Something will necessarily eventually go wrong, or at least possibly go wrong. And what Descartes observes is this is still the best possible orientation here. Like, imagine that you don't feel any pain whatsoever. Like, imagine you just feel this good feeling all the time. Like, I am happy right now. Woo, everything is fine. And then it becomes less happy when you feel pain. Like, I stepped on attack, and your feeling of elation diminishes somewhat. You feel less happy. You feel like the pleasant tingling sensation just goes away. This would not be a great way to do bodies. Because if something really urgent happens, like you have stepped on a tack and now you are vulnerable to disease and you are bleeding profusely through your shoes, you want to be able to handle that immediately. You do not want to be cutting vegetables and then accidentally cut off your finger and not notice. People who do not feel pain, and this is in fact a thing that happens, have an incredibly difficult time trying to figure out exactly whether or not they are healthy or not. Like, they have to check the insides of their eyelids to see if they haven't, like, scraped up their eyes today because they can't tell when something is wrong. There's no indication. So pain is a good thing. Pain is a necessary part of this process. Pain protects us. Likewise, if you feel thirst, when you are thirsty, that's a good thing. It tells you you need to drink something. Can you imagine not feeling thirsty and eventually, like, dying of thirst because you didn't properly drink water because you had no way of knowing that you were supposed to drink water? That would also be bad. So this is the best possible scenario. Like, the body tells you when something is wrong. It, in order to do that, it has to communicate over a distance, which means at some point it has to be hijacked. Better that your body tell you the right information 99.9% .9 of the time than for God to make some crazy out there solution that eliminates this problem, but also eliminates the messaging system entirely. Better that you be wrong 0.1% of the time. But even more importantly than that, Descartes points out just because you're getting bad information doesn't mean that you're not equipped to handle it. If you are, you know, amp or an amputee, if you were missing your arm and you feel pain in your hand, you are admittedly getting bad information, but it's also bad information that you can correct pretty quickly. Like, you look over at your arm and you're like, yep, still gone. And thus you can stop worrying about it. Like, yes, you're getting bad pain. Yes, it's something that you should probably deal with. Maybe take some painkillers. Maybe ignore it. Maybe whatever. 
At any rate, you're not going to, like, do something stupid, like try to apply, you know, a bandage to the arm that doesn't exist because you're going to look down and say, yeah, I have no arm. You can check with multiple faculties than just whatever sensation you're feeling at that time. If we go back to that example of, you know, the fire alarm is going off in my neighbor's apartment. Should I leave? Should I not leave? Well, your first move should probably be to double check. Like... I am not limited to just hearing the fire alarm. I can use my other senses. Do I smell smoke? If so, I should probably leave. Maybe I'll put my hand against the wall that adjoins my apartment to theirs. Maybe it feels hot. If so, it's probably a fire. I should leave. But more importantly, and Descartes stresses this, we can use our minds as well. Like, the whole reason why I was suspicious of the fire alarm in my native neighbor's apartment in the first place is because I know that it's gone off before and it's just been a false alarm. Like, if I don't know that, if I don't have any experience of it, if this is the first time this has ever happened, then yeah, you better believe I'm getting out of my apartment. I'm not going to, like, take chances on this one. The only reason why I suspect that this information could be wrong is because it's been wrong before. There might be a short in their, in their fire alarm. There might be some habit of theirs that it causes them to give bad information. Um, we can, in addition to using our other senses to verify what is the case, we can use our minds and our experience. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. If you get dropsy, if you have this sensation that you're thirsty and yet you've been drinking water all day and for some reason the thirst isn't going away, the first thing you're going to do is go to the doctor. You're going to see an expert, someone who is trained in these things, someone who has better knowledge than you. If the cause of your error is the fact that you don't know enough, you will get more information. That's how we work. We are designed to work that way. So if we're getting bad information, there are a bunch of redundancies in place. Yes, it's only a 0.1% chance that we're getting bad information in the first place, but in that 0.1% chance, we can usually verify the bad information that we're getting. We can look down and see. We have no arm. We can consult our experience. Yes, I am sick with dropsy and should therefore ignore the sensation of thirst. When, if you are getting this fire alarm from the other apartment, I can, in fact, use my other senses, use my memory, use my experience, and judge should I get out of my apartment or not. Do you think that it's likely that this is bad information? And we as a whole, as a community, as a society, are trying to get more information so we can make these judgments more impressively, so we can eliminate the possibilities of error. But again, apply that. If we go back to the church should stop like ragging on Galileo and scientists, notice Descartes has just presented the argument that God wants us to verify our sources of information using our other senses, using our other capacities and faculties, using our other abilities. He wants us to double check Aristotle and Plato. He says, okay, you do not properly understand the universe. You recognize the sun goes up, the sun goes down, the stars cross the sky, the planets move in these strange, mysterious, retrograde manners. Why do you think that is? Now, Aristotle says it's because they all move around the, the earth. This is why the sun rises and sets. This is why the stars move. This is why planets move, except that they don't always move that way. So there must be some other explanation. Then you get Galileo coming along and says, I have a better explanation. 
that isn't a problem. That's what God wants us to do. That's what we're designed to do. If there is a problem with the diagnosis that we have administered, if we are feeling pain and don't know where it is, we should consult the doctor. We should talk about phantom pain. We should look around and see what other information can we get. The more information we get, the smarter we are, the fewer mistakes we're going to make. God wants us to do science, in short. God wants us to question this established information that was handed down by Plato and Aristotle. God does not want us to get complacent. What Descartes is essentially saying here, what he is essentially giving us, is an argument that even within the church, even within the religious perspective, even within this understanding of God, we are supposed to get more information to make more informed choices. We are not supposed to be acting purely on faith. Now, what I am arguing here is that Descartes doesn't necessarily need these proofs for the existence of God. Certainly not the second one. Um, I am arguing that he is making his case specifically to convince the church that science is okay. Science is good. Science is what we should be doing. Please do not keep arresting scientists for saying things that go against our established understanding of the universe. That was bad information based on limited information. Now we have a better information and we can make better, better informed judgments. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Descartes is like an atheist and just hiding it. Again, God is really central to this whole argument. Like, you cannot get to the senses are reliable without going through God to get there, according to Descartes. Like, notice the progression of this argument. I exist, God exists, God is reliable, math is reliable, the senses are reliable because God is reliable and would not have created the universe in a way that deliberately deceives us. He wants to make us deceived as little as possible. This implies that God is a pretty crucial part of Descartes' formula here. So I would argue Descartes definitely does believe in God. At least the third meditation proof is 100% what Descartes buys. I could be wrong. Really, who knows? Maybe he's just putting on a good show to make sure that the church doesn't ban his book. It's entirely possible. But it seems like God is a little bit too important to this whole argument to be able to rule him out entirely. But at any rate, what he's definitely arguing here is God wants us to do science. God wants us to be careful with the things that we think that we know. God wants us to doubt and suspect the things that we know insufficiently. And God definitely does not want us to act rashly and make snap judgments based on our insufficient information, just like he says in Meditation 4. Here he backs it up. We should positively use our senses, use our intellect, use our memory, use our understanding, use our rationality, use math to figure out what the world is like, to figure out what we should do in any given circumstances. Let us withhold our judgment until we fully understand the circumstances. Let us get more information and then once we do fully understand, once we do have this perfect mathematical model of the universe, let us affirm, yes, the earth goes around the sun not the other way around. Now that said, Descartes does have a caveat here. For all of these evidences, for all of these proofs, for all of these arguments, at the end of the day, the last lines of the meditations are, 
But because the need to get things done does not always permit us the leisure for such a careful inquiry, we must confess that the life of man is apt to commit errors regarding particular things, and we must acknowledge the infirmity of our nature. Remember, the original problem that Descartes was dealing with is the senses are unreliable. They occasionally tell us bad information. We are occasionally mistaken about things. I don't know whether I'm dreaming. I think the sun is only a dime in size when in fact it's a lot larger. I have phantom pain and yet I do not have a limb. Um, at the end of the day, yes, we should ideally get all the information we can and make our judgments only in a careful, informed manner. Refrain from giving assent or denial when our knowledge is insufficient. Recognizing that the, cause, the main cause of error is us making decisions about things we don't fully understand. But, at the end of the day, if I'm woken up in the middle of the night by a fire alarm, I should get the hell out of my apartment. It doesn't matter what rationality I have, what arguments I have. It's just safer. It is less dangerous to make a bad choice in this situation than to make a better informed choice or to sit around pottering in my apartment, feeling walls, smelling the air, trying to deduce whether this is a false alarm or not, and get burned up. Like, there, eventually you have to make a call. And sometimes you're not going to have the time or the leisure to figure out every little dimension before making the call. Trump had to make a decision. Are we going to quarantine? Are we not going to quarantine? When are we going to quarantine? What, how is it going to look? What are the policies involved? Does everybody get money? Are they going to like bolster the stock market? These decisions have to be made now. Now, 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 now. Or else worse things might happen. We don't know all of the factors involved. We don't know the legacy. We don't know all of the implications of the things that we're doing. We don't know how people are going to react. We can't consider all of the factors. And then we have to choose anyway. Descartes observes this. We're going to make mistakes because sometimes we gotta make these snap urgent judgments and yeah, some, that means not knowing exactly what we're getting into. We are going to make these mistakes. Is that satisfying? Do you think that that means we can trust the senses as strongly as Descartes seems to think? Again, like 99.9% .9 certainty is pretty darn good, but it's not guaranteed. We do not have deductive proof that our senses are telling us the right information. We only have this pretty strong argument, well, God wouldn't deceive us. So, you know, we can trust our senses most of the time. Sometimes not, but, you know, most of the time. Hooray! This is tough. Like, we went into Descartes and I was like, I'm going to blow your minds. Your senses don't actually tell you anything. Like, everything is suspicious. Everything is doubtful. But don't worry, because by Meditation 6, we will rescue the senses and everything will be fine. Well, it's not. Sorry, I lied. Oh well, you can't trust the senses. Resume life in your completely unknown existential dread because that's the way it's going to go. You will not have proof. You will not get certainty. The senses do not allow for it. There will always be some tiny little shred of doubt niggling at the back of your brain saying, but what if it's all a lie? What if we're all in the matrix? What if it's just the wool coat shown over our eyes? What if it's just an elaborate deception? And I'm not going to be able to help you with that. Sorry, I brought it up. Now you're stuck with it. Oh, well.
But notice Descartes, honestly, probably isn't that interested in, you know, the proof, the guarantee, the absolute certainty. Like, nothing about life is absolutely certain in most cases. Anytime when we're dealing with reality, it's a judgment. And anytime we're making a judgment, there is at least some possibility of error because our knowledge is imperfect. Um, we can't systematically go through the entire of entirety of Descartes' meditations every time we make a decision. If I feel like I have to go to the bathroom, I can't like stop for six days and be like, all right, what do I really know? And what have I been deceived about? Like, what are the things that people have told me are true that aren't actually true? Like, I know I exist because, you know, even the fact that I'm doubting demonstrates that I exist. And if, if I exist and I have all these ideas, well, are any of these ideas like totally reliable and, and yeah, eventually you should just pee. Um, you're going to have to make snap judgments. You can't stop and philosophize through every single situation. But importantly, Descartes' emphasis here is we shouldn't rule out the work that good philosophy is doing. We shouldn't rule out Galileo because he's doing something that is different from what's been done before. We shouldn't rule out the efforts of Bacon to make experimental proofs for things we thought we understood perfectly well before, and it turns out we don't understand as perfectly well as we thought. We should recognize we make mistakes. We should admit this. So this is all back to that first principle in all of philosophy. All the way back in Plato, know yourself. Know when you're wrong. Know that you have limits to your knowledge. Know what you don't know. So this is this moment in history when people are not doing this. This is this moment in history where people are saying, you are wrong because Plato, because Aristotle, because the Bible. And Descartes is saying, no, you were wrong because you are not making your decision on informed basis. Look at the evidence, look at the information, look at the data. The world around you is changing. It's time for some more epistemological or intellectual humility. It's time to admit that a person who makes a judgment, like Euthyphro did, on insufficient information is doing something rash, reckless, dangerous. You are stunting human growth here. Stop it. Let the scientists do their science. So that's Descartes. Now, again, I imagine that we're going to have lots and lots of very fruitful discussions about how bullshit all of his proofs for the existence of God are or what he's doing. But do keep in mind as we go forward, like as we talk about this, as we even move forward with other philosophers, um, like Descartes kind of gets a bad rap. Like every intro to philosophy class I've ever been in has taught Descartes. Like he is a great punching bag for early philosophers. But keep in mind, like, what makes Descartes awesome isn't necessarily his arguments. He is not foolproof. I do not pretend like he is foolproof. I will act in order to defend him as best as I can, and I imagine that I will struggle with that in the Q&A, because I always do, um, and everybody hates him. But Descartes is valuable not because of, like, the content of what he says. Descartes is valuable because of what he's doing at the moment that he's doing it. He is saying what needs to be said at his moment in time, and it's this incredibly valuable thing that we do need to be reminded of on a regular basis. It is that same epistemological responsibility argument that Plato did. It's that same philosophical reminder. We are not perfect. We are just human. 
we make mistakes, identify the things that you don't know. Know when you are making a snap judgment on insufficient data. Know when you are subject to error. Know when you might be dealing with a mistake here. So let's keep that in mind as we go forward. The other thing to keep in mind is Descartes' own place in the business of modern philosophy. Because this is it for Descartes. We are moving on to Hume in the next couple of lectures in the, in the coming weeks. And Hume and Descartes are kind of op two opposite poles of what modern philosophy is doing. Um, Descartes is very much at the very beginning of modern philosophy. He is like this major turning point as we move from the medieval period to the modern period. He's not the first modern philosopher, but he's like the biggest, most major like upsetter of what philosophy is doing at this point in time. But he's also in a very particular camp. Hume, on the other hand, is on the complete other side. He is a very late modern philosopher. He is like the last of the modern philosophers before we turn to the German idealists. Um, he is sort of reacting to Descartes and reacting to these other philosophers who have come before. Um, but they also have two very different attitudes on knowledge. Remember, for Descartes, the senses are the enemy from day one. Um, the senses are untrustworthy. The senses give him bad information. All of the proofs that he makes are proofs that take place within the confines of the mind alone. We do not prove the existence of God first. We prove the existence of us first. We prove the existence of our existence as a thinking thing first. We can't get our bodies until the very end, and arguably we don't even get them terribly well then. At the end of the day, we have to conclude we don't really have great evidence for our body, just that, you know, God probably made us the way that we think we are because he's not a deceiver. That's it. If you don't like God, well, tough. Here we are. Um... This puts Descartes squarely in the camp of the rationalists, people who believe in rationality as the, as the most reliable form of knowledge. Remember, this is epistemology now. We're talking about knowledge. Um, the senses are reliable or not reliable based on what we understand about ourselves. Um, Descartes is a hardcore rationalist. Rationality is the, is the first source of knowledge. Rationality is the most reliable source of knowledge. The senses are not trustworthy. We cannot pay attention to them first and foremost. It is, we have to check the information of the senses with the information that our reason offers us. Hume does not agree. Hume is going to come out guns blazing saying the senses are it. There is no knowledge besides the senses. Everything that we do in our brains is not knowledge. It's just faffing about with a bunch of fun little mathematical proofs and nonsense. And it has no bearing on truth, reality, or the actual world. Keep that in mind. Once again, we're going to be flipping the script, starting from square one, changing up all of the assumptions, and coming up with the system that appeals to it. So reading Hume, watch for that. Watch for Hume's attacks on Descartes. Watch for Hume's complete disagreement with Descartes' assumptions. And watch for what Hume concludes about his world and about his understanding of the world. Because in some ways it's going to be very similar to Descartes. They're both heavy-duty skeptics in their own right. In some ways, it's going to be very different from Descartes, and he will be taking aim at Descartes pretty regularly. Also, fun fact, Hume is the only English philosopher we've read at this point. So no translation necessary, but on the flip side, you're also going to be reading straight up 18th century English. So have fun with that. 
Um, as always, if you have any questions, concerns, feel free to email me. Uh, feel free to talk to me about how the class is going. Like, I'm still writing or doing this recording, like, on spring break, so this is, like, two weeks in advance at this point. Um, so I have no idea what's going on with the class right now. Presumably I will eventually. Um, but definitely keep me informed whatever's going on. Um, in the meantime, don't make any rash judgments. Be sure that you know what you're talking about before you go spouting up nonsense on the internet, or, and be sure that you don't make rat or judgments based on insufficient information, at least as much as you can. Bye!